You're listening to the Global Ooj Podcast, where every week we learn about the world through the eyes of entrepreneurship with your host, Ujwal Velagapudi. Everybody wants to retire early, right? But the difference between actually doing it and not is by simply taking action. Lance Tanaka was an executive for some of the largest international brands like Nike and Pepsi, which had him running operations all over the world. He had a desire to retire by the age of 45, and so he set out a 10-year plan at 35 to actually make it happen. He transitioned to doing what he loves, which is to truly make an impact on lives and the development of executives at large international companies similar to him during his corporate days. The Lance Tonica Group is based out of Hong Kong and has accumulated over 17,000 hours of coaching over a thousand executives, as well as a few thousand middle managers and thousands of top university grads from Asia, Europe, and even in North America, from the very best of the best global clients. Thank you so much, Lance, for joining the Global Uj podcast. How are you here today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you all. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Could you give us a little background about Lance and kind of your uh, how you had gotten into the executive coaching world and how that even came to be? Okay, this might be a long answer. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Uh, As you can tell by my name, Tanaka, I'm Japanese, but I was uh, born, raised, educated in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And my first international assignment was in Tokyo running uh, Pepsi Tokyo. And then after that, I went to Taiwan where I became president for Pepsi Taiwan, then Singapore running Southeast Asia, and then uh, managing director for Indonesia. Oh, wow. And then I left them to join Nike. And I ran international for a division of Nike, which covered Asia Pacific, Europe, South America. Uh, but then uh, my lifelong, I guess you could say, ambition was to retire at 45. Mm-hmm. So when I turned 45 in 2001, I, I left the corporate world. And retirement for me was to do what I love to do, what I'm good at doing. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, started this uh, executive coaching consulting boutique firm. And what we did is we focused on C-suite level. Uh, either one-on-one coaching, coaching their teams, you know, as a team or group coaching, which maybe is C, sweet minus one minus two, working in groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we focused primarily on uh, the top companies within their industries. So we work with the big three consulting firms, big four accounting, the top 10 investment banks, the top 10 insurance companies, uh, automotive, pharmaceutical, biotech, high tech. Uh, so, you know, we're very blessed. We get to work with, uh, you know, leaders of these really uh, amazing companies throughout uh, throughout Asia. And now we're starting to expand to the U.S. and Europe. Oh, wow. So it was so how did you. Was it truly because of your background working in the Japanese and uh, Indonesian uh, Asian markets that allowed you to get into some of these larger corporate clients? Well, actually, the the I think the main reason was working at Pepsi. Okay. Uh, Nike also, but Pepsi. The interesting thing about Pepsi, it is not exactly a warm and fuzzy environment. It's kind of uh, you know. The survival of the fittest. 
And what was nice about mm-hmm. uh, Pepsi is that you actually run the entire business, you know, from manufacturing, okay. sales, after sales, everything. So you get you get a full uh, full business. And what's nice about it is that they really didn't care what age you were, what your ethnicity was, what your gender was. If if you could demonstrate you're ready for the next job, you got it. And you could have been in mm-hmm. your previous job for 12 months and it's okay, let's move you. Right. Um, so really, I, I, so one of the key reasons I can do what I do now is because of the, I guess, the training experience I got at Nike. But then what I also discovered when I was 35, this is when I was the GM for Pepsi Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I started putting my 10-year plan of saying retirement. And what I did is I really did a lot of self-assessment on what were my strengths, what was my experiences, my passions, my values. And from that, really leveraged the heck out of all that and created this mm-hmm. this company around, the, around those things. Uh, so that's really why I, I probably could do what I, what I do. Yeah. That's actually pretty interesting because I, to have that plan in place to say at 35, you know, I've got a 10 year projection and 45, it's my hard stop. I am doing this no matter what was, I mean, I hear that I've heard that more and more often in the last decade, I would say. As mm-hmm. people are saying, you know, I want to retire at X and I want to retire earlier than that 65 traditional target. But right. when you were going through it, it, would you say it was common? I mean, w- I mean, would you say it was highly uncommon, even significantly less so than this today? And how did that actually come to be? Was it an external influence or was it just innate uh, within you saying, you know, this is this is it and I want to, you know, pursue other passions outside? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say it hasn't changed that much, but mm-hmm. everybody wants to retire early. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, and I deal, I deal with successful executives, CEOs, mm-hmm. partners, managing directors, and you'd be amazed on what percentage, a high percentage of those people are not happy. And, mm-hmm. you know, they may be making good money, maybe have powerful positions, but there's something missing. And... Mm-hmm. So I think everybody wants to understand this is my vision or this is my mission. This is what I want, mm-hmm. whether it's retirement or not. I think that's right. a common thing. Now, what started me on that path was uh, I read a book from um, Stephen Covey, mm-hmm. the Seven Habits guy. I read a book called mm-hmm. First Things First. And I, I think that was after okay. the Seven Habits. Okay. Uh, and basically what it taught me is that this difference between urgency and, and importance mm-hmm. that, you know, if you draw an axis of these the quadrants, important, non-important, yeah. uh, urgent, not in, urgent, yeah, four quadrants. And yeah. that second quadrant, yeah. <laughs> the second quadrant is the most important thing. What's, yeah. what's important, but not urgent. Right. And so that's what started me on my journey starting to realize what's in that quadrant. Mm-hmm. And it's around People, relationships, yeah. long-term planning, faith, health, everything. And that's what I started focusing in on. And then by doing that, I started realizing what's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started developing a, a tool, which, which we use now, uh, called Dream and Achieve, or mm-hmm. DNA for short. And what that tool does, it helps you identify specifically your strengths and your passions. Hmm. Okay. 
that that's yeah that that's really interesting because i uh just finished seven habits uh, a few weeks back and yeah ever since then i've had the four quadrants <laughs> and i've been uh, making sure that i don't neglect that quadrant because like he says in the book it is extremely important where those are your relationships those are your long-term you know x years down the road sort of tactical items that you need to carry out in order to see that long-term vision so yeah yeah um so what we do is we take that say that second quadrant and it tends to be fairly general. It says, I want to be healthy. Uh, you know, I want to develop relationships. What the DNA process does, it it uh, makes you answer specificity about who, what, where, when for all those mm -hmm. things. And when okay. you get down to that, drill down to that specificity, it allows you to take action now. Because mm -hmm. if you say, oh, I want to be healthy, well, you know, that, well, I don't right. know what that means. But if you say, I want to exercise, I want to run for 3K mm -hmm. on Monday, Wednesday, now that's actionable right and how do you break that down is is it uh like for example something that i've done is i have i have all these long-term plans and these goals and the way i looked at it is all right if i do something every single day that builds to that goal eventually in a certain amount of time it'll compound and I will achieve that goal because I'm doing it on a yeah. daily basis. So, yeah. uh, so I've broken down everything that I do on a daily basis and I have like a daily checklist on a professional level for business, for a personal level, and then a weekly, a quarterly, and then annually. So, uh, how, how do you kind of get these actionable goals, uh, for these executives so that, you know, they can incorporate it? on a consistent basis to yeah. ultimately achieve. Sure. Uh, and you, your approach is great. That, that's great discipline. Uh, very few people do what, you, what you've what you done. It's not, first of all, you have to have the overall direction. Mm -hmm. So that's what the quadrant two does. It says, overall, yeah. I wanna be healthier, develop relationships or whatever. And then what you've done is you've taken those things and you've broken them down into very bite-sized actionable pieces. Uh, which you now do on a daily basis, which is great. Um, that, that's what we help people do. Now, what we don't do is probably daily because that's really hard mm -hmm. for most people to say, okay, right. I will exercise every day for 30 mm -hmm. minutes or whatever. Uh, they'll do it the first week or two and then it'll get down to zero by week three. Right. Uh, what we do is we we take those specific things and we break them down into what I call achievable steps. Mm -hmm. So if, if the mindset says, well, I'm going to exercise every day, then I'll challenge you to say, are you going to do it every day? No matter what? Oh yeah. Right. What about, what about how vacations? Oh, maybe not. What if you feel sick? Oh, maybe not. What if you got a big deadline? Oh, maybe not. It doesn't work then. Right. So then what we do is say, okay, if you can't do it every day, let's r reduce the bar lower the bar. Mm -hmm. Is it three days a week? Even one day a week doesn't really have that much impact on your health, but mm -hmm. it makes a big difference. Because if I can get you to exercise one day a week, week after week after week, what mm -hmm. happens, you start rewiring the brain and then it starts becoming a, a habit. And then you can go from one to two, two to right. three. Okay. And for some of these, uh, for some of these executives, is it, 
I guess the full gamut of services that you provide, is it also coaching in terms of their particular role in that industry or is it more uh, non-industry specific, more so uh, qualitative skill sets within within their role and their organization? We don't typically work on industry specific things. So let's say Mm -hmm. if it's, let's say it's a CFO, we're not going to work with them on how to do financial planning. Okay. Uh, they're, they're probably much better at it th- than we are. We right. focus in on the soft skills around mm-hmm. leadership, around management, influence, communication. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what, what I found, because I work across all these different countries, different nationalities of leaders, whether Japanese, Chinese, Americans, Brits, Germans. Mm-hmm. And what we found, there are basically eight common challenges that leadership leaders face regardless of nationality function industry uh and then uh, we've developed 11 principles mm-hmm. that if you in some combination use these 11 principles you can you can address any of those eight challenges okay and so we ended up putting that in a book mm-hmm. uh, and the book is called stories from the top we just uh, re- released it last year or le- end of last oh, wow. year okay mm-hmm. okay and so you've communicated with all these executives all across, you know, all across the board from every corner of the world. Uh, that that is interesting to see that you found those common principles regardless of the country and the nation and uh, what sort of title they have. So as far as I want to get into kind of their mindset, because Lance, you at thirty five had that vision of okay, forty five. I'm going to start you know, putting this plan into place so that I can retire. What about the executives? Because I've always wondered as, you know, I, I did have a corporate job. I quit a couple of years ago and my interest has always been in business. And so I was, uh, you know, I could never imagine myself being in any sort of management and executive role. And so uh, when I look at some of those folks, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, they would make an excellent business owner. They would make an excellent uh, you know, entrepreneur. And so when you said most of them are not happy, there's something void in what it is that they're doing. What do you think that truly is? And, uh, do you see that ambition for entrepreneurial aspects where kind of like yourself, you know what, I'm making good money here. I'm doing well. I've got all this experience. Let me do something on my own where I can probably yield the same amount financially and yet Mm -hmm. a lot more freedom yeah yeah um making for me making that jump from corporate executive to entrepreneur was tough Mm -hmm. it really was tough because when you're used to being an executive you fly first class stay in the best hotels you get all these people hundreds of people supporting you and all of a sudden that goes to zero (laughs) (laughs) you've got to schedule your own plane flight you know thing like that (laughs) um the, uh, so that is a challenge. But the interesting thing is, I mean, every day I'm confronted by executives that say, hey, I, I want to do what you do. Hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean coaching, but it means right. I want to do my own thing. Right. Because I'm just being pummeled, hammered down by the 
by the you know all the pressures and the the matrix structure mm -hmm. and all these things that you know i can't do what i really want to do mm -hmm. I, I don't get to really leverage my real strengths i don't really get to work on my passions on a daily on a daily basis and mm -hmm. so i'd say a, a very high percentage of these successful executives want to be entrepreneurial Hmm. Okay. They do, but it's very. I mean, it's difficult. It is. Is it? Uh, you you more... did it right. That wasn't that. That wasn't so easy, was it? It wasn't. It really wasn't. Uh, what was going through my mind pretty much was there's a big chunk that I'm leaving on the table uh, financially and the yep. security wise and just the ease of uh, what I was doing. It just came naturally and pretty easy to me. And so you're leaving all that on the table. And yes, I was able to, I, I had about three businesses on the side, uh, when I had quit. So there was, you know, even greater income. And so I was completely fine leaving it, but it was still in the back of my mind. All right, this is so easy. Why am I leaving this? And so that financial aspect, it definitely, it definitely made me think twice and thrice, but ultimately it came down to the principle. I said, oh, Joel, you are leaving because you know that if not today, you know, down the road, financially, you can yield significantly greater uh, returns. And then personally, just freedom wise, you can learn so much more in whatever endeavors that you're going to pursue. And so I kept having to tell myself, all right, it's, it's about the long run. It's about the principle. Stick to it. If you... Yeah satiate that need for that short-term desire to make that extra couple bucks today ultimately years down the road you're not going to yield you're not going to achieve those you know ambitious goals that you set out for yourself because exactly. you're not learning you're wasting your time on the on just making a couple bucks here today versus learning to make a bigger impact down the road so exactly. that was kind of my mindset you know I, I remember when i turned 45 and i'm about ready to quit Nike and about to start up this firm. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I'll wait a one or two more years and I'll be able to get a little more financial, you know, build my, my financial nest egg a little bit more and then I'll be ready to jump. And then I ran into one of my uh, mentors and he basically said, if you work two more years, will that finance really make a significant difference in your long-term life? I said, no, mm -hmm. not really. It won't have much impact right. at all. He says, but by delaying your dream by two years, that could be a travesty. Oh, yeah. And it was right. And that's when I made the jump. That's very true, actually. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even looking back personally, two years would have been today. I, I, I don't know where I would have been today if I had started <laughs> two years later. And, uh, yeah, uh, 100% yeah. agree that I think if you can have that mindset and shift to, uh, and I think for the most part, would you say for a lot of these executives, it's that financial aspect where, like you said, they are used to a certain lifestyle and they are going from making, you know, X dollars and then it's, oh my gosh, I have to start from scratch or go to zero or, you know, that is it more so the financial transition or is it, do you think also I am in a leadership position? I oversee a hundred employees. Uh, I am respected in the community. It's a, it's a social hierarchy. Is that because I know, uh, 
you know, I was born in India and, and whenever I go back, I see that within, uh, in India, at least as far as it's a prestige sort of thing. I mean, it is all over the world. I would say if you're working at a large company, you're an executive. Uh, so do you see it being financial or more so the social aspect that's, um, kind of tying some of these folks down to where they are currently? I, I think it's both, you know, especially for Asians, like you said, mm -hmm. Indians, same way. It's uh, that, right. that um, your brand is really important of what mm -hmm. company you work for and, you know, the size yeah. of your house and what you're, you got the newest car. That That's really important to these people. So it's a combination of finance as well as, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm important, and then if I if I become an entrepreneur, I'm going to go from very important to nobody cares anymore. Right. And so you know, those are two very big hurdles to have to to get over. And then mm -hmm. there's another hurdle. Once you get into the business, you start discovering things that you never even thought of. What What do you mean by that? Just the various challenges that an entrepreneur faces. Yeah, I mean, uh, in general, it's that you got to do everything yourself. Right. You just yeah. can't delegate a menial task to somebody. You have to do yeah. it. Right. So that's one thing. But the other one, especially in my business, is that business development is everything. Networking mm -hmm. is everything. Mm -hmm. And you have to really build this discipline to go out there and network constantly, mm -hmm. day after day, and deal with uh, rejection. Yeah. And a lot of executives don't have to really sell and they don't get rejection. <laughs> and once mm -hmm. you get into, you know, into an entrepreneur, you're going to get lots of rejection and you've got to be able to learn to deal with it. No, that's part of the numbers game. Mm -hmm. uh, and for some people, that's too much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Typically right now then, or I guess when you had first started, you had mentioned it was your, your Pepsi relationships that, really leverage you were able to leverage that into some of your first clients but what about today how does marketing work today uh, what sort of mediums is it word of mouth with some of the clients that you've worked with already is it an ongoing basis where uh you know maybe some companies do uh an annual or biannual sort of uh training uh coaching with you guys and how does that marketing effort look today yeah Prior to last year, prior to 2019, mm -hmm. all, all our new business was through word of mouth, 100%. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, and because we deal with, you know, the big three uh, consulting firms, the big four accounting firms, the big law firms is one that gets a lot of credibility. When you say, oh, I work with Goldman Sachs executives, that immediately mm -hmm. says, oh, you must be, you must be good. Right. right. So there's credibility there. But the other thing is those clients are those those companies serve other clients. Mm -hmm. Oh, and right. So we work that avenue a, a lot. And uh, so what I do, I've got when I look at all the people that I've coached and it's a couple thousand now. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I have a database of those thousands, 2,000, 3,000 people, and I'm mm. always staying in contact or I have a schedule, you know, who to contact those people because it's mm -hmm. amazing how much business you get through through just um, staying in contact with your own people. And then I've gotten to yeah. the habit of asking them, 
hey, can you introduce me to one of your clients or clients that you think have a need? And I've been able to generate business uh, that way. So uh, I guess my business might be a little bit different than than on other industries, but I would imagine for most, it's all about relationships. And if you've got, you've created great trusting relationships, that mm -hmm. will generate a tremendous amount of business, either within that company or, you know, outside. Can you talk a little bit more about that as far as those relationships? How do you nurture those relationships and how uh, to ultimately to the point where they are just uh, effortlessly uh, fruiting some of those, some of those connections and, uh, some new business for you. Is it, uh, just, yeah, if you can kind of go into what that really entails, because I think that's something that a lot of people miss. And like you were saying before, in that second quadrant, those are our relationships. So yeah. uh, what strategies do you use and, and what, what is networking and then ultimately building the relationship and then ultimately, um, you know, yielding some actual financial incentive down the road. Okay. Uh, a, a couple things that go into that. Uh, number one is that the focus needs to always be on them, not on you. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, look at how great I am. Look at what we've done. Here's what we can do for you. Th that right. focuses on me. And that right. doesn't work. What, uh, what, what we do is to focus on them. What are your problems? What are your needs? What are your priorities? What do you struggle with? What are your challenges? Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole focus is there because what we don't want to do is sell. What we want yeah. to do is help identify hot buttons, problems, needs, things that they're really struggling with. And then maybe subsequent meetings we can then sell to connect. Mm -hmm. So let's say that's one thing. The other one is around building exceptional customer service. And what I mean by exceptional customer service, meaning they send you an email, you respond immediately. Mm -hmm. You don't let anything go 24 hours before you recontact them. Right. Uh, you deliver always on time, always mm -hmm. earlier. Right. Um, and, and so that's providing exceptional service. Now, the reality is you can't do that for all your clients. Mm -hmm. So what I do is we, what I, I call my platinum clients. These are my handful of clients that I want to be with. I want to build my business around. Uh, I want to work with them for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so I, whenever there's a contact or anybody coming from those clients, everything gets dropped. <laughs> And I make sure that I'm really taking care of them. I'm focused on them, deliver more, better, earlier. Mm -hmm. And they're always surprised by that because you don't get that from service providers. Mm -hmm. And so that when I do go back to them saying, hey, you know, is there anybody you, you think could use my service? I go, oh, yeah, you know, I've got these, you know, these three, these three friends. The other thing is that it's easy to provide service levels and contact when you're working on an engagement on a project with them mm -hmm. but that project ends right then what typically happens is what most service providers do is they don't contact them until possible <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. so what i do is I, that's why i've got that database and i make sure i'm in con i'm in contact with them on um, and i know what they want or i know what kind of article to send to them or their birthday or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. So you end up becoming more top of mind. 
for them. So when that opportunity does come about, you're at the front of the line versus the right. other providers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. And, and as far as, you know, all these countries that you've actually visited and gone to, you, you were saying that you jump on a plane usually about three out of the four weeks in a month. How do you maintain that relationship and maintain that contact? Is it, uh, do you have various team members that are in charge of certain accounts and you get, like you said, the platinum clients, but uh, how large is the organization? How do you structure it in such a way where that customer service is excellent and they are getting the service that you need and then also yeah. to be able to do the coaching and trainings? Yeah, I have eight coaches and they're in China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, UK, US, mm -hmm. um, Middle East, and um, they have their platinum clients. Okay. And then, you know, the whole focus is they need to make sure they provide exceptional service to the, that handful of clients. It could be three, four, five, six clients. And then I'm doing the same. Mm. And then we coordinate between all of us about who's going to do what. Because some of them, there might be two or three of us that will work on the same client. Okay. Mm. So we have to have great coordination. But the thing is always stay top of mind. Always focus on them. For example, is when I go to a client, and when, when you look at my client list, you know, I'm very blessed. I've got really great clients and, you know, world-recognized clients, but I've also had them for years. For example, Deloitte, I've been working, coaching Deloitte partners for 19 years. You know, Daimler, oh, wow. 18 wow. years. Uh, McKinsey, 13 years. Morgan Stanley, 15 years. So what, what I do is when I, let's say I go to the Shanghai office in Deloitte because I'm working with somebody, I will make a point mm -hmm. of just walking around the office, <laughs> their office. And then when the doors open, I'll just kind of stick my head and say, oh, hey, how you doing, so, Andrew? Uh, how are things going? You know, have yeah. a few, get a conversation to move on. One that give, that, main, that maintains that top of mind. But the other thing is mm -hmm. a lot of times they'll say, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. And then right. I might have a possible solution and that leads to, you know, other engagements. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how, during the early days, I'm sure, like you were saying, during that transition, you were doing a lot of this yourself, but how did you get to bring on board eight other folks that you felt comfortable enough to then put in front of your clientele? Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> because the eight that we have aren't not necessarily the same eight from before. Right. So, yes. you know, I, I tried to do my due diligence and, and choose the right people. It doesn't always work out. Mm. Uh, but most of these people are people I've known for years. Well, a lot of them I've actually coached. Oh, really? Uh, I was just about to ask that. Past, yeah. In, in the past. Okay. And so, yes, I'm looking for uh, industry experiences. So like we have one guy who focuses on insurance. We've got another one who mm -hmm. focuses on financial services. One focuses on asset management because they've got 10, 20, 30 years of experience and network in those mm -hmm. industries. So, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we, we try to focus that way. But to me, the most important thing is do we trust each other? Mm -hmm. That's what's important to me. You know, I don't have to work anymore. And I, I, you know, 
back in the corporate days, you have to work with a lot of jerks, a lot of people right. you just can't stand, but you have to, right. you have to work with them. Uh, I don't want to do that anymore. So mm. I'm trying to choose people that I enjoy working with, people that I trust, people that we're going to have long-term relationships where we share, uh, uh, you know, we help each other, we take care mm -hmm. of each other. And, and so that's important to me now. Yep. And when you were bringing some of your team members on, did you have a playbook that they could go off of? Or was it, especially in the early days, was it more that hands-on training, you know, you come shadow me or we'll tag team this uh, coaching session together and then slowly uh, learn and then so on and so forth? Or is there kind of right now, let's say you're bringing in that ninth and 10th person, is there a playbook or an SOP that uh, you can you can provide? Well, first, first thing is we I haven't read the book. What <laughs> <laughs> right. really encapsulates a lot of the techniques and methodologies that we use. But, you mm -hmm. know, to your point, and this is where I'm not very disciplined. When I first started, I had no playbook and it was just like, mm -hmm. OK, let's let's, let's just keep talking. This. Let's get yeah. meeting. I'll walk you through this engagement or if you're going to be uh, pitching this client, let's, you know, let's talk about how to do that. That's how it was in the beginning. In reality, that's still kind of the way it is now. Uh, but, you know, we'll schedule every month a what I call circle where we all, mm -hmm. we all get together and we go through some case studies and, and, and business development activities. I, I, yeah, I hate to admit it, I still need to do a more disciplined job of codifying and putting all that into, into I guess, a manual um, kind of thing. But the, the interesting thing about coaching, it's very, very... Oh, it's very visceral. It's very, it's not necessarily technique. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the mistakes that, you know, there's a lot of coaching accreditation companies out there that certify right. you to become an executive coach. They're focused on technique. And, you know, okay, technique might be good to have, but coaching and, and, you know, I'm being biased because I am a coach, but coaching is an art. Mm -hmm. It's not, a, it's not really a skill. It's more right. of an art. Right. And it's this ability to be able to read people, this ability to tell, is this person really going to do what I, what they say they're going to do? Mm -hmm. uh, are they really motivated by this? Um, knowing when to push them and when, when to pull back, when to ask questions, when to provide uh, advice. Mm -hmm. It's that art. And that's what we really focus on with my coaches is trying to teach that art with, with of course, with some technique. Right. But technique without the art isn't going to be effective. Exactly. And, and so when you have that, when you do say it is an art, how within the structure of your coaching, it, how long are the engagements typically? And then if it's not a one or two day or a one week workshop, if it's an ongoing basis, let's say it's on a weekly or monthly basis, do you have some sort of KPIs or some sort of metrics, a quantifiable way that you like to break things down and, and track? Or is it uh, more in a subjective progression type of uh, understanding yeah it's difficult to set um empirical kpis mm -hmm. it's really hard to say well because you're coaching you can improve your revenue by 
3.2% or reduce your turnover from this to this. It's too hard to nail that down because so many factors go into those numbers. So the way we measure is through um, is, is through identifying behaviors and then measuring the behaviors. For okay. example, let's say we go into a, a, a coach engagement. So we'll interview 12 of their stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And let's say from all that interview, it comes down to three key things. This person, let's choose one. Let's say this person is not very collaborative. Mm-hmm. Well, when people are giving feedback, when their bosses are giving them feedback, if they're giving it, it's going to yeah. be, hey, you need more collaborative. But I really don't know what that means. Collaboration can mean so many different things. So mm-hmm. what we do is we take that, what I call attitudinal value of collaboration, and we break it into observable behavior. What does it look like when they're collaborating? What does mm-hmm. it look like when they're not collaborating? And then we identify very, very specific behaviors. And for example, one of the behaviors might be that uh, you always interrupt people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a behavior that I can measure. I can see when you do it and I can see when you don't do it. Yeah. And so then what we do is, okay, now we've got a, a kind of a stake in the ground, a benchmark saying, okay, people are saying that you're um, interrupting. You're not listening. Mm-hmm. Then we can measure that three months later, six months later, go back mm-hmm. and talk to those people, say, how is this person doing regarding the interruption? And then we can see real change or or not. Right. And that's basically how we do it. We, we, we just don't do it on one behavior. It might be three right. behaviors, four behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that way we can measure it. So what are all the, I guess, things that you typically tend to coach on? And what are, I guess, what are some of those issues that people come to you with? Yeah. Well, um, the number one, the number one topic when we're dealing with uh, executives is really all around what what I call authenticity. Really? Okay. Are you the leader? Are you real? Are you who you really are? Are you demonstrating who you are? Do you have an idea of where you want to go? And are you leveraging your strengths, your passions, your gifting, your experiences to become more of who you are already designed to be? And then that 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 talk, that also uh, goes around career development, uh, performance appraisals, all that. That is the, absolutely the number one topic that we work with most executives on that's really surprising why 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 do you think that is do you think it's because they're i don't know they were only able to get to the position that they were because they had to do certain things maybe if it's a political structure i mean they've had to come up so many wrongs to get to where they're at is it more on the politics more on managing so many different uh, personalities and folks around them that makes it tough to actually be who you are truly? Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into that, Uj. Uh, I'd, I'd say one of the key things that we see all the time is that people have a tendency to try to be what other people want them to be. Mm-hmm. And so, or it's like, oh, I really admire Steve Jobs' leadership style, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that. So you know, every, 
everybody right. reads the book, you know, right. <laughs> it does, but that won't work because that's not you. Your, mm-hmm. your brain is not wired that way. Your yeah. brain is wired a different way. And so uh, what a lot of people have to learn is to kind of, okay, you can admire somebody, but if you really want to figure out authenticity, you got to be who you are, which means number one, you got to identify what that is. Number two, you got to be okay with it. You got to be happy mm-hmm. with it. And then three, you've got to start doing things to little by little push out the things that you're not good at and little by little bring in the things that you are. Mm-hmm. And that that progression over a fairly short period of time, you'll start seeing that you're you're going to become more of who you are. You're going to become more authentic. Mm-hmm. And then people will gravitate towards you. People gravitate towards authentic leaders. Right. And so that's the number one thing we work on with with leaders. And, and, and then we, I wrote another book called Dream and Achieve, and it's all about trying to figure out what is your authentic style. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The number two most popular topic is around influence without authority. Influence without authority. Okay. Because most companies now are matrix structured. Mm-hmm. And no one in the organization really has power to do what they want. They have to mm-hmm. influence. Even the CEO doesn't have power. All right. The CEO can't say, okay, we're going to get out of this industry and we're going to move into this product level. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. Right. They've got to convince a lot of different people. And so it's this whole process of how do you influence people, even though you have no authority over them? Mm-hmm. How do you get them to want to follow? Not because they have to, but because they want to. And that is the, the, the number two most requested topic that we work on with executives. Is that something where essentially you're trying to convince your, your higher ups? If, if you're, let's say the CEO, you're trying to get that approval from your board uh, yeah. and it's always, okay. Or even, yeah. you know, your peers. And, peers, but right. even your people. Hmm. Okay. It's, you're going to be a much more more effective leader if you get get your people to want to follow you rather than mm-hmm. get them to have to follow you. Okay. Yeah, that's very true. You get much greater results mm-hmm. from it. So you even if you can even take that that uh, mindset of saying I've got to influence my people, you start getting that mindset and you start making those changes that you need to make, you're going to become mm-hmm. a, a much more powerful leader. Mm-hmm. And Lance throughout I mean, everything that you're saying, I kind of taken back into some of my experiences with different cultures and different people from different parts of the world. I know you mentioned there's, uh, you know, even across the across various countries, there's uh, some of the core essence is still the same. But how do you maneuver all those all those changes with uh, the cultural aspect? I'm I'm sure it has to be significant. And the language barrier, as a secondary question, do you know uh, more than one language? And if so, what are they? And so how do you work through some of those challenges? Well, I'm for coaching, coaching is a very nuanced um, it is, yeah. uh, profession or whatever. So you really have to have an exceptional understanding of the language. Mm. So just being fluent is not, uh, is not enough. Uh, but you know, I can do 
you know, Japanese or Chinese, you know, but, but, but it's, it's more conversational. It is okay. nowhere near the level of proficiency to be able to, to coach. It's hard enough doing it in English. Right, right. <laughs> it's hard enough. But, you know, there are differences culturally. When if you're coaching a Japanese person versus coaching an American or a German, mm-hmm. uh, there's differences, and you have to adjust your your approach for the different uh, cultures or different uh, nationalities. Mm-hmm. What do you think has been the biggest learning experience as far as okay, you've got a a new a new customer in this new country or this new region, and you've never experienced it before? And it was maybe what you were trying to say and convey didn't quite translate properly, uh, not literally, but metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe not today, but maybe years ago, was there any particular country that, okay, wow, this kind of, you know, this is pretty interesting and this is new? Yeah, I mean, right right now I'm looking at India. Okay. Uh, that can be different. You know, we, we do India on a on a ad hoc requested basis. So Morgan Stanley says, "Hey, I got somebody," or Goldman Sachs says, "I got somebody in India. Go, go, you know, coach them." Okay, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. But now I'm starting to look at well, you know, with as big as India is, right. that we need to start establishing maybe an office or a presence mm-hmm. uh, in India. And I remember the first time I did a workshop in India, it was a big shock for me because I'm used mm-hmm. to doing Chinese and Japanese and Koreans. And when you do workshops with, with those cultures, you're spending a lot of effort trying to draw people out, mm-hmm. trying to get them to talk. Then I get to India and it's just the opposite. Really? You got 11 directors in there. Oh, <laughs> so <Yeah>. had to, <clears throat> excuse me, had to learn how to be able to kind of, this terrible thing to say shut people up mm-hmm. but get people to you know to to calm down so we can right. get you know everybody in so we had to learn that process on how to do uh, uh a group workshop in india is very different than how we we would do it in japan mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i could i could see that <laughs> 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 and what the what specifically your your company is based out of Hong Kong, right? So how much time do you really spend there? And do you have a lot of clients actually within Hong Kong or uh, mostly mainland China? Well, Hong Kong back in uh, 2001, when I started up was the gateway to China. Mm-hmm. So all the clients, even though we, we fo- our first focus was greater China. Mm-hmm. So Hong Kong made the most sense to do that. But then as time goes on and, and as it will continue to go on, Hong Kong is going to get less and less influence over China. Mm-hmm. And so Shanghai and you know uh, Shenzhen, Beijing, they're all going to really grow. Uh, so that's why I spend more t- a lot more time in Shanghai and Beijing, for example. So mm-hmm. I have to fly there every month, uh, although I haven't done that at all in 2020. But right. uh, you know, hopefully, twenty twenty one or twenty two, we'll you know we'll start start doing that again. But face to face is important. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't do it all the time, obviously. Uh, even bef- even before or post COVID, you can't do all face to face. It's just mm-hmm. not uh, economically feasible or logistically feasible. 
but it's still really critical. So you still have to have a presence in those markets. Mm-hmm. And typically when you structure your day, when you said logistically not possible, do you do uh, a couple hours with somebody, a couple hours with another client, a couple hours with another client throughout a single day? Or do you typically block off an entire day to do kind of a workshop with the greater team? It's it's interesting. Every day is different. Okay. Yeah. I mean, every day is different. We might have a, a, a day, you know, one, two, three day workshop where we're focused on that group of 10 people or 12 people for, mm-hmm. you know, for the, the two days. Then I'll have some days where I'll actually have anywhere from six to seven coaching sessions in one day. I'll oh, wow. start early in the morning, go through the evening. Yeah. And now that I'm doing U.S., y- Europe, as well as uh, Asia, now it's all times of the day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can I, I do sessions at five in the morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, do them late at night. I once did a workshop where it started at, see, my time was around eight o'clock in the evening and ended at three or four in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my time. So it, 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 it really just depends on the day. But that's what I love about mm-hmm. this job is that there is, there actually is no predictability. It's just right. everything is different. And throughout this entire process, you focused on primarily executives, right? I'm interested, or I'm kind of curious, have you looked at or even wanted to, or do you think it's a completely different ballgame to coach entrepreneurs like yourself? Maybe, uh, you know, they're not executives of multi-billion dollar companies. Maybe it's multi-million dollar or they've got small eight, nine figure businesses. Is that a world that you would want to see where maybe you're not coaching an executive within that organization, but it's, uh, it's the owner of, let's say a $50 million company and, you know, small business owners. Is that something that you like to get into? Or is that uh, from a coaching perspective, is that completely different? It's, it's not completely different. So there is some differences, uh, which I could talk about in a second, but, uh, started working with startups about a year or two ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's fun. Okay. <laughs> it's really, I really enjoy working with these, with these organizations. Um, the, the difficulty is they don't have a lot of cash flow. Hmm. Right. And we're expensive. Right. I mean, we're, we're expensive. So to hire us, it's, it's, they, a lot of companies can't, can't um, afford us. So, you know, we do things like options or shares or, mm-hmm. you know, deferred so it's something Mm -hmm. that gets paid down the line if if it's successful but also starting to experiment with working with um accelerators Mm -hmm. on these different groups about how can we work with groups of entrepreneurs but right now you know that's kind of like a infant stage so if you have Mm -hmm. any ideas around that would love would love to do that because it really is enjoyable working with uh with uh, these smaller startups that's interesting you say that, yeah, that you do enjoy going that route uh, because I, I can I can see from kind of the flip side that, you know, well, we've already got our established clientele. These are large organizations. They pay us well. They've got the cash flow and stability. But yeah, if you definitely if you enjoy that aspect where, you know what, they're going a million miles an hour because they have to at the startup level, yet there's a lot more moving parts in terms of 
what could go wrong because they're going so fast. And so yeah. I think yeah. it comes with a new set of challenges uh, that, you know, obviously will make it more entertaining for you and uh, enjoyable to work with. But uh, as far as that, on the pricing standpoint, I think, yeah, if you definitely enjoy that, let, let's definitely speak afterwards because uh, I think there could be a way when you hit on the accelerators, uh, some of these facilities and organizations, they do have those in-house coaches or resources to be able to go to and to partner up with some of those facilities where, okay, maybe it's not Lance that's going down and providing that service, but maybe it's someone from your greater team where you can say, all right, maybe we'll do it within a certain structure, a financial structure where, uh, like you just said, the options and deferred, uh, deferred payments could work out uh, financially with those companies. And then something that I've also looked at myself is working not just with recent startups, not seated startups, not angel funded startups, but actually they've gone through a full round of funding mm -hmm. and they're, you know, they're, they're venture backed and they've got some sort of funding where they are looking to immediately deploy. And with the amount of money that uh, everybody's raising these days, it, it seems like they've got, it's burning a hole in their pocket, so they've got to spend it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, then we'll, we'll volunteer there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would love to pick your brain on that because that's something we'd really love to uh, consider. Our first startup uh, is kind of the latter one that you described. They already mm -hmm. went through the first round and now they're mm -hmm. in their second round of funding. Uh, they're, they're in the mode of expansion now, mm -hmm. distribution expansion. It's uh, out of um, uh, Silicon Valley. It's a mm. medical device company. Okay. So uh, it's fun. It really is great working with organizations like that. And typically, what about that? And do you enjoy? Like, is it uh, or and why did they reach out? Is it primarily uh, we're a twenty-person shop right now? We got to go to five hundred in three years. Is, is it the expansion and building out their infrastructure internally from a leadership standpoint? Yeah, that, it's that. I mean, from the business side, they know what they need to do mm -hmm. to, yeah. to grow. But their problem is, okay, now what do we do from the talent side? Mm -hmm. uh, that's an issue. And it, it becomes more of an issue for these companies because when you add one or two people, that's a significant increase right. in, in, say, in the leadership uh, uh, role. And it creates a, it's what I call the compression factor. Mm -hmm. which is when you if you have to hire somebody from the outside you got to pay them more than the people on the inside right right, right? and then there's jealousy and there's all kinds mm -hmm. of issues that come out now because right. uh you do but you have to do this because you need that those skills to be brought in so a lot of what we work with a ceo and his or her team is how to manage through these these really sensitive issues of bringing new people in how do we assimilate them how do we get the people on you know existing how to accept them mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. deal through all that that's a big uh, big concern that we find in working with these startups okay yeah i'm actually that's that's very excited i'm excited for you because i think that's uh on one side you're you're working with the clients that ultimately these startups want to be one day where they are established. They are, you know, these large multinational corporations. So, uh, that's, that's interesting. You're seeing kind of both sides of the coin. Right. And these, and these people tend to be younger, mm -hmm. you know, they're younger CEOs and a lot of them really don't have business experience. Right. 
Right. You think they're more so, malleable that way? Oh yeah. yeah. They're much more <laughs> like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because when, when we're dealing with a, with an, uh, a, an executive has been in, in their automotive industry for 30 years, they think they know everything. Right. When you get a, a new CEO of a startup, it's like, okay, I got a great idea, but I don't know anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, those are much more uh, more uh, rewarding to work with people like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, they're probably because more we, receptive. We, we refuse certain uh, coaching engagements because we just don't think the person's open. Mm-hmm. If the uh, person was... isn't open to change, I don't. I don't want to deal with them. I don't care how much yeah. you pay me. It's not worth yeah. it. I was going to ask that because it, it does take it does take two to be able to say, you know, I will learn from this and I will progress. Right to be open and receptive and not have some of those filters on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lance. I, I know uh, probably got a packed day and we're ending near the hour, but I really appreciate you sharing so much and uh, definitely want to talk to you again. Uh, like we said, I, I think there's uh, a lot of synergies and especially that last little bit about working with startups. I think, uh, you know, at least, there's definitely some in my world that I can definitely introduce you to and, um, you know, see if they may come to fruition, but, uh, it was, was amazing understanding kind of the different perspective, especially how you're interacting with some of these executive coaches and the nuances with, you know, every region, every country. And so, uh, definitely appreciate you taking the time. Well, I, I appreciate, uh, your time. So thank you so much as well. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. Please do leave a comment on your thoughts about today's episode and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest on the Global Ooge. Or if you already have, please share with a friend that you think might enjoy.